Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by Michael Heiss. Michael is the founder and the chair of the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus. Just a couple weekends ago in Reno, Nevada, the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus took over the National Libertarian Party. Big news within the world of liberty. Really appreciate Michael joining me. If you're a fan of The Kelly Patrick Show, I ask that you please send some referrals the way of my sponsors. The title sponsor of the show is Louisville Combat Academy, located at 7908 Beulah Church Road, Louisville, Kentucky, 40228. They have a great MMA program, but also, even if you aren't planning on fighting in the cage, they have a great jiu-jitsu program for adults, female-friendly classes, and a great kids program also. Check out Louisville Combat Academy. Heidi Solars Coots. Heidi is a licensed clinical social worker and licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor, specializing in treating anxiety, depression, trauma, and addiction with a mindful and holistic approach. Heidi is actually my mother, and I can attest she is a saint. Call her at 502-457-1823. Virtual and telephonic appointments are available anywhere in the United States. Veercast Digital Media. Veercast Digital Media at veercast.com. Matt McCarthy runs Veercast, and he is also the producer for The Kelly Patrick Show. They do video production, aerial drone photography, web design, and podcast production. Contact them at info at veercast.com to start your own video show or podcast. Also, my health insurance practice, Benefits Analysis Corporation. Based in Troy, Ohio, I work from my Louisville, Kentucky office. I can help anyone in the United States with their health insurance needs. I'm an independent broker for health insurance solutions for individuals, families, Medicare-eligible individuals, and also groups. I can also write life insurance, and long-term care. If you want to support the podcast, please send me some referrals. 502-386-0978. We are now going to head to the Louisville Combat Academy Roadcaster line, where I am joined by Michael Heiss. Michael, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate you joining me. Michael Heiss is the In the world of of libertarian or the liberty-centric world, Michael is the founder, I believe, of the Mises Caucus. Is that an accurate description? You founded the Mises Caucus? Yep, founder and chair. Founder and chair of the Mises Caucus. I I really enjoyed listening to your recent episode you did with John Odermatt. Uh, I thought it was pretty cool to get a, a glimpse into a little deeper into who you are and kind of what your background is, what brought you to really the Ron Paul um, campaigns and then ultimately founding what is the Mises Caucus. If it's all right, this is a regional, the Kelly Patrick Show is mostly a regional MMA podcast. So my goal, Michael, is I hope people in Kentucky, Ohio, and really anywhere in the country who listen, I hope they're not very familiar with the Mises Caucus or even the Libertarian Party, and they're tuning in, and they'll get a kind of Libertarian 101-type view on things. So if it's all right, could you introduce yourself 
to the Kelly Patrick Show audience, who is Michael Heiss. What brought you to being the founder and the chair of the Mises Caucus, which now basically means you're the, the founder of what is the current incarnation of the official national libertarian party? Who is Michael Heiss and how did this come about? Well, um, I became a uh, Alex Jones listener when I was like 14 years old. Um, so pretty early on, I mean, I'm 33 now, so this was a little while ago, um, you know, got into his, uh, his documentaries and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, that really opened my mind up to thinking outside of the box, uh, and being open to thinking outside of the box. And, uh, you know, I didn't realize that, uh, you know, that there was a social issue with thinking about conspiracy theories and anything like that. Uh, at the time I was so young until I started taking it to school with me. Uh, and you know, I would start to get into debates with people and they would tell me that I'm crazy and I would insist that I'm not crazy. And that would just cause me to kind of double down and, and continue to, uh, to research. Uh, and, uh, so, you know, I just fell deeper and deeper into some of these issues like income taxes and, you know, at the time, nine 11 truth. Uh, and then through the Alex Jones thing and, and my small network of friends that got into that with me, um, you know, we had, uh, encountered Ron Paul and this was, uh, right around 2007, 2008, um, for that campaign. And, uh, he resonated with us really strong, but you know, at the time the, the, the internet wasn't what it is today. It, it's just, uh, like social media wasn't is, wasn't what it is today. So basically me and my, my buddy Kyle went through this alone and found this alone. And, uh, you know, we didn't know anybody, we didn't know how to get involved. So we kind of were just on the sidelines learning and taking it in. And, uh, you know, being inspired by Ron. Uh, and, uh, so from there I started getting deeper and deeper into the, the freedom philosophy of libertarianism. I started getting more into economics, um, until, you know, 2011 came along and we knew that Ron was going to, you know, run for president again. So we started taking action. Uh, and by taking action, that just means something as simple as, uh, you know, we, me and Kyle bought a bullhorn and went to the federal reserve building of Philly and, and started uh, bullhorning the first amendment center, uh, you know, talking points that we had picked up from Ron about the federal reserve and inflation and fiat currency and, you know, all of this sort of thing. And so I kept doing stuff like that. And, and eventually it caught the attention of a, a group of people in Philly uh, that called themselves truth, freedom, prosperity. Uh, and that was this like crew of people, you know, they weren't necessarily political per se. I mean, they, they were all, uh, supporters of Ron Paul, but you know, other than that, it was just this eclectic mix of like anarchists and survivalists and conspiracy theorists and libertarians and people who were, uh, you know, into alternative medicine and, and all this stuff. Um, and you know, we had regular meetups and stand up comedy gigs and, and live podcast episodes and documentary screenings and, and all of this stuff that, uh, you know, showed me this underground world that is the, uh, um, the, the Liberty movement. And, uh, you know, prior to that, I felt very alienated. I felt very alone. Uh, and, uh, so when I found this kind of underground world, I just kind of went full steam ahead and never looked back. And, uh, you know, so that, that takes us pretty much up to, uh, 2016. Uh, I had never really entertained the libertarian party because like a lot of people, especially a lot of libertarians, I had, um, you know, kind of saw the, the libertarian party as a joke and not worth my time. Um, and I uh, got so I dipped my toe in after Rand Paul fizzled out in his primary race for president, and 
you know, just started exploring, kind of seeing what was what, you know, where I fit, uh, what projects I might want to work on. And, uh, you know, so I went through the Gary Johnson campaign and, you know, that really left me wanting, uh, you know, I, I came into the libertarian party expecting it to be something like the, uh, the Ron Paul revolution. Uh, and I was pretty surprised at what I found, uh, that there was a lot of, you know, progressives at the top. Um, it just didn't have the energy. It didn't have the enthusiasm and, you know, just the, the, the general vibe that the Ron Paul thing had. So that, uh, that kind of caused me to start making some observations and some comparisons between, you know, my experience in the Gary Johnson campaign and my experience in the Ron Paul revolution. Uh, and ultimately I concluded that the, the two things need to merge, that the, the Liberty movement and the Ron Paul revolution needs to be brought into the libertarian party to give it that energy and that animation so that we can have a base from which to build. Um, so that's kind of where the, uh, the Mises caucus was born. That was, uh, August of 2017 that I made the Facebook group. Uh, and it pretty much exploded out of the gate. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just been growing rapidly ever since then to, uh, culminating in, in, you know, the uh, national convention a couple weeks ago where, uh, our endorsed candidates swept all of the leadership positions of the, the libertarian party. Wow. Okay. So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, you mentioned that originally you were kind of into Alex Jones. If you had to, in hindsight, evaluate uh, what you took away from Alex Jones, what do you think of Alex Jones today? What did he bring to the table for you? Uh, of course, through your what uh, political evolution or however you want to describe it, uh, um, what was Alex Jones uh, in that process? And then what are the differences between Alex Jones type stuff and Ron Paul? And so the Ron Paul revolution, is it that much better than the InfoWars type stuff? Or, or, or what are the differences there? Well, it's been quite some time since I paid attention to, to Alex Jones and InfoWars. I kind of jumped ship in, I want to say, late 2015. In the, the run up to the 2016 uh, race, I kind of jumped ship there was a lot that happened in that, that little time frame there. Um, you know, they started going for Trump. Uh, there was one interview where I felt that they really, uh, misrepresented Ron Paul. Um, and, uh, a lot of people kind of tried to ride, ride that Trump wave. So, uh, I kind of haven't really paid attention since then, but, uh, I, I wouldn't, I don't regret or anything like that. My, uh, my experience of, uh, as an Infowars listener and all that. I mean, I, I do think that there's a lot of good that they, they provide in terms of news of what the state is up to, uh, what kind of corruption that they're up to. Their documentaries are still very, very good. You know, uh, history of, uh, false flag attacks and, uh, in terror storm, you know, that's the name of the documentary. Um, so I, I, and, and Ron Paul was interviewed by Infowars for like 20 years, you know? So, um, he wasn't afraid to go on there. And I think a lot of people were exposed to Ron Paul through, uh, Infowars. So I don't at all regret it. I couldn't tell you what they're up to today, but um, as far as what their differences are, Ron Paul never changed. You know, Ron Paul never never tried to uh, uh, ride the uh, ride the Trump wave and, and all that thing. But uh, while I would I would say Ron Paul is a pure form libertarian, whereas uh, Infowars is you know maybe uh, I, I would say they're liberty they're liberty leaning, but not raw form libertarian there, there may be a little bit more let's say liberty republican and kind of on that that side of things um so 
you know, there's, there's some difference there, but I also think it's an audience that, that, uh, we should, we should look into and, and be appealing to. I mean, like I said, they, they've been interviewing Ron Paul for over 20 years, you know? What, when you first learned of Ron Paul, approximately what year was that? And what was so appealing about him? Cause clearly the Mises caucus, I mean, it's called the Mises caucus. Obviously that, that's a, a Austrian economist, um, who Ron Paul would say it's a great idea to call it the Mises caucus and everything, but it almost could be like the Ron Paul caucus also. So, I mean, obviously yeah. Ron Paul, um, in his influence, I mean, hell, he spoke at the convention uh, a couple weeks ago and that was such a big get for you, uh, on that big stage. But what was so appealing for you about Ron Paul and why is he still so relevant today in 2022 that the, the caucus that just took over the national party is basically modeling themselves directly after Ron Paul? Yeah. So one thing there is, is I actually, when I was conceptualizing the idea of the caucus, it, it came down to, am I going to call it Mises caucus or am I going to call it the Ron Paul caucus? Um, and I ultimately decided on Mises caucus because, uh, Ron Paul is who inspired me and who inspired most people in my age range to become that are libertarians to become libertarians. Um, but without Mises, there'd be no Ron Paul. Uh, and Mises is kind of the, uh, the godfather of the entire uh, Austrian tradition and, and kind of the tradition of libertarianism that Ron Paul is in. You know, Ron Paul is a senior fellow at the Mises Institute, uh, for example. Um, so we wanted to kind of cast that net to cover the entire tradition. Um, so I would say intellectually we are Mises and Rothbard, but the spirit behind us is, is, is Ron Paul. Um, so when I encountered him in 2008, 2007, 2008, um, you know, I actually wasn't really political before that. Um, you know, I was, I was pretty young. I think I was like 19, 18, something like that. And, uh, but, uh, just how different he was from any politician that I had ever heard and, and how he just unabashedly and courageously spoke the truth, you know, and, and, uh, he wasn't afraid to be booed. He wasn't afraid to go against everybody else on the stage. Um, and, and for me, that his, his courage has always been the thing that most attracted me to him. And uh, I, I really think that's the case for a lot of people that, uh, that encountered him and, and, and got into him. So, like, as to why he is still relevant today, I kind of, I think there was a lot of young people that became libertarians because of him. And, you know, like I said, I was 18, 19 years old. I'm 33 years old now. I think there's a lot of people who, you know, they had kind of had to get through college and they kind of had to get their lives together, but they never, uh, uh, lost sight of the ideals, you know, and, and they always wanted to do something. And, uh, Ron Paul is what brought us all together. That's the other thing. You know, he, this whole Liberty movement, as, as far as I'm concerned, this whole Liberty movement, as we understand it is due to that, uh, is due to Ron Paul and, and how he brought everybody together and got all these people connecting and working on projects together and got everybody excited and, and into the ideas and, and all of this. So that was always what we were striving for with the Mises caucus is, you know, there was this, this kind of feedback loop in my mind that, that Ron Paul initiated where he got everybody together. He got everyone fired up on the ideas at the time. You didn't have all of this infighting like you do now, you know, like the, the utility of what, Ron was doing and what was happening at that time was so blatantly obvious that everybody was uni united behind it. Like basically it was only an idiot would, would not be poor Ron Paul if you were in the Liberty sphere. 
uh, at that time. Um, and then in the absence, you know, after his 2012 run, things started to dissipate and, and, you know, people were having the minarchist versus anarchist debates and that's kind of where I cut my teeth. But, um, but the unity started to, to go out the window, you know what I mean? Like the, and, and there was no plan of action for like to capitalize on this community that had been brought together. So, you know, things just started dissipating over time. And what I wanted, so what I observed is that, you know, Ron Paul united us as a leader, but then, you know, that's one man, one campaign that ends, you know? Uh, so if you could ever recapture that energy and recapture that feedback loop that he initiated under the guise of an organization or an institution, it never has to end. It could just continue to snowball forever, essentially. Um, so that's what we, uh, you know, what we set out. One of the things that we set out to do with the Mises caucus. So, you know, I, I would say Ron is, is like I said, he kind of makes up the spirit of, of the, uh, of the Mises caucus. And that's why it was so important to have him at our event. You know, he, uh, it's like being validated by him. And, uh, that to me is incredibly meaningful. Now in 2008, Bob Barr was the, uh, I believe the libertarian presidential candidate. And then of course, in 2012 was the first time Gary Johnson, uh, ran actually as a lib, you know, of course, as a libertarian, while, uh, both of those, uh, uh, campaigns, uh, Ron Paul was attempting to be the Republican candidate um, for president. How would you explain that? Because what you said there was in 2012, it was more united. If you're a liberty-oriented person, you supported Ron Paul, but he was running as a Republican. Um, how do you describe that? Well, he had, he had access to the uh, primary debates, and that's kind of what brought everyone together and what got all the eyes on him. Cause it was, it was a different time back then where everything still went through the mainstream media. That, that paradigm is gone now. It's a different, it's a different day. But, um, and he was also just, again, much more courageous and, and upfront and unabashed as a libertarian than either Bob Barr or Gary Johnson. Um, so again, I think it's that courage and that consistency and that conviction that he has, uh, that, that really did it mixed with the fact that, you know, he had that platform through the primary debates. Um, you know, Bob Barr, I think is generally considered the low point <laughs> of, of the, uh, libertarian party in terms of presidential candidates. Um, so, you know, I wasn't even paying attention to the libertarian party back then, you know, and, uh, Ron didn't make it about a party. I mean, yeah, he was running as a Republican, but it was all about the ideas and, uh, you know, he was playing an ideas game and not a, a political game. So I really think that had a lot to do with the energy and the excitement and, and the unity that was brought behind him and not necessarily uh, the party. Prior to you following Ron Paul and of course starting with Alex Jones, but did you maybe identify as a Republican or a Democrat? No, I wasn't political. I was just into some conspiracy stuff through Alex Jones. Um, and then even that, it's like, you know, some of my friends had brought like Loose Change, that's not an Alex Jones documentary, but like uh, uh, like a 9-11 Truth documentary to me and that kind of got us into the Alex Jones stuff. And um, I had never been involved with with a party or anything like that. And, and honestly, even then, I mean, I registered as a Republican so that I could vote for uh, Ron Paul in the primary. But that's I, it's not like I ever joined the GOP or was involved in any political activity. And even then, it didn't feel like politics. That's, that's the thing that was so crazy about it. Like, it just, it felt like we were this ragtag group of people saving the world. <laughs> and then, like, you know what I mean? Like that's, we're trying to save the world and, and fighting the odds and, you know, we're fighting media blackouts and, 
and all of this stuff. So yeah, I, I wasn't really political before that. I mean, I went through like a patriotic phase when I was like 12 years old after nine 11, but, uh, I wouldn't say that I was, uh, I was political before that. Were you ever into like any Michael Moore type stuff or any more of the, I guess you would say left, left leaning type political or uh, conspiracy theory things? No, I wasn't. I didn't realize it at the time, but my like, you know, I was so young and so green that like, you know, I didn't know the terms left, right and all this stuff. I didn't realize that some of the ideas that one of my, you know, one of my friends was going with would be considered left wing. He started getting into uh, Noam Chomsky and, you know, the book lies, my teacher told me and stuff like that. And, you know, that all made for a very interesting conversation. But again, I was so young and green at the time that I didn't even associate this with like left or right or anything like this. I, it was just, you know, we're the crazy kids at school ex- experimenting with, with ideas. Okay. Fast forward to the 2020, um, presidential campaign. Of course, Joe Jorgensen and Spike Cohen ended up, uh, being the, the, the team that we're trying to, you know, run for run for president for the libertarian ticket uh, headed into that. I thought it was going to be Jacob Hornberger. Was that a Mises caucus guy? And um, what were the expectations headed into that? So, yeah, we, we endorsed Jacob Hornberger. Uh, and as far as I was concerned, he actually gave us, even though he didn't win the nomination, uh, he gave us a very valuable proof of concept. Um, and, uh, what that proof of concept was, was, uh, the reason we got behind him is that, you know, he's been in the Liberty movement and running the future, uh, uh, the future freedom foundation for like 30 years. You know, this guy's been friends with Ron Paul and Judd Knapp and all those guys for 30 years. And one of the goals of the, the caucus has always been to get the Liberty movement in the party, you know, start doing a better job of, of actually representing our own people. Um, so that's why we got behind Hornberger because he kind of had that movement credibility and we, you know, we felt that he could get a whole bunch of members in and sure enough, he did get about 1200 members in, um, on a $60,000. I know it's not a primary, but we'll just refer to it as a primary primary budget. Whereas Joe Jorgensen over the course of her campaign, she brought in 3000 members on about 30, $3.4 million spent. So, um, uh, you know, that was, that was a proof of concept for us. Uh, you know, Hornberger was coasting for the majority of that race, but, um, you know, he took some aggressive approaches that, uh, I think turned some people off and, uh, made it so that he might've been a whole bunch of people's first choices, but he wasn't a lot of most people. He wasn't their second or third choice. Uh, and I think when that, when Amash dropped out of the race, Hornberger had atta- attacked Amash mercilessly. And, um, you know, we can argue whether it's fair or not, but uh, a lot of people didn't appreciate uh, how how fiercely he went out uh, after Amash. So um, Jorgensen kind of became the regression to the mean for the rest of the party. Um, and uh, she was the second and third choice for a lot of people. So she won on, I think it was the third or fourth ballot. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a lot of flaws, and I'm pretty critical of that campaign, but I did still consider it a step in the right direction. Uh, for, for her to have been the nominee because the way I saw it is, you know, despite her flaws, um, she is a plumb line libertarian. You know, she, she really is a, a libertarian, which we hadn't run an actual full-throated libertarian for, you know, over about a decade at that point, or maybe more. Uh, and uh, so I, I saw that 
I saw that as we, the Mises Caucus, had already shifted the Overton window within the party uh, to where, you know, we're, we got principle back. We hadn't necessarily won the culture of the party yet, and I think that kind of speaks to some of the flaws of the campaign, but we did win the principle back. Um, so we had to kind of change the culture of the party, and I think that's what this most recent convention was, was mostly about. During the Joe Jorgensen campaign, I'll admit, I, I didn't become a libertarian until Corona just fucked everything in our country up. You know, I, I, I didn't, whatever, that was my epiphany or uh, moment of being radicalized or whatever it was. I was like, even the Republicans suck. And so I have kind of been in the liberty movement just over the past couple of years. Uh, admitted, okay. Admittedly, when Joe Jorgensen was going to Black Lives Matter rallies and things like that, I was thinking to myself, hmm, that's interesting. And in hindsight, I feel kind of silly uh, that I even felt this way. But I was like, you know, that's kind of creative. Maybe she'll bring some people over. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe it's a good thing. In hindsight, it looks like she was clearly just bowing to the woke mob. And that should not be what a principled party is about. Um, there was the one tweet that it wasn't her, but someone on her staff released that it's not enough to be actively or passively anti-racist. You have to be actively anti-racist, something like that. And that, of course, pissed a lot of people off. I was naive. I was so new to it. I didn't really know what the hell was going on. In hindsight, uh, Michael, why is it so important to have a candidate who, although clearly it's not like a racist organization or anything like that, but they're not going to bow to whatever demands of the woke mob that are thrown out there. Why is that so important? So there's, there's two things here. Like, like I said, we have to be speaking libertarian principle to the people, right? And, and that's important. We're the libertarian party. Of course, that's what we're supposed to do. But there's another deeper thing that I think a lot of libertarians don't understand or they aren't hip to. You know, they think if we just go in here with our libertarian principles and that's it and that's all, that that's going to be good enough. But the fact of the matter is, is, you know, we as libertarians, we talk about non-aggression a lot. Uh, that's like one of the cornerstones of our philosophy and, and therefore the power of the state to violate the non-aggression principle and the nature of the status force. And that's all true. And that being said, the, the first method of control, the primary method of control that the state exercises is essentially mind control. Uh, it's, it's, it's control of information. It's control of the narrative. Uh, it's, it's, it's control of the news. It's, it, so it's basically control of what we believe and what we, uh, what we're in this, what, what is it within the allowable spectrum of conversation. And once they can control that, um, we start to socially enforce the norms and the, and the narratives on each other. So that makes, they don't even have to do much for us. We do it to ourselves. Um, and so for this reason, the narrative, you know, people, generally speaking, people don't act out the premise that their political philosophy or the policy prescriptions are the thing that are at the top of their value hierarchy. People are, I would argue, physiologically wired to respond to narrative, to respond to stories. We, we, we talk about our own lives as if they're stories. Um, so you have to nail the narrative, which means that you have to break, not just espouse libertarian principles, but break through the narrative that, that keeps the status paradigm in place. And this is the whole job of what we refer to as the cathedral. Um, you know, the, the, the media, the, the academia, like all the institutions that kind of 
make up that narrative and, and shape that narrative and, and push it forward. And this is something that I don't think Joe Jorgensen got. And there's a lot of people that don't get it, you know, cause on the face of it, you know, the, the, the tweet that you talked about, like it's not enough to be uh, anti or it's not uh, to be passively anti-racist. We must be actively anti-racist, you know, on the surface at face value, it's like, well, what's wrong with that? You know, do you want to be racist? They don't understand that. Or a lot of people don't understand that, that there are groups who want to empower the state that are agitating uh, through they're, they're using language to agitate towards their uh, preferred political ends. And they're re uh, redefining language like bigot, you know, like racist and all of this stuff and making it and, and shaping the narrative along that new definition to, as to agitate towards statist ends. And, there's a lot of people who don't understand this and, and who don't understand that this is the primary method of, of getting people to sign on to their narrative so that they sign on to the policy prescription. So first and foremost, you have to break through that. You have to have your own that we have to have our own narrative. And what she did was she basically played it safe. That's I think what was what happened there. They felt that, well, if we just use the, the language of the predominant narrative, um, and, and use that to make, make like to, to ensure that we're safe to these people. Then we can like put the, uh, the libertarian message out there from that place of safety and they'll buy in. But when the reality is it doesn't, it's not safe it, it, to, to conform to their narrative when we're not a part of their in group, it actually makes us easily dismissible because we're not a value add to them politically. We're not strong enough to be a value add and we're not strong enough to be a threat. So basically we just signaled our safety and we're easily dismissed. You know, and, and um, that's how that works. And you have to have the courage to take the blows that, that come with breaking that narrative. And in this case, you know, if you break that narrative, the blows that are going to come are you're a racist and you're a bigot and all this stuff. But the, the, the reality is, is that the counterculture of the country understands this. You know, they've all been called racist for years now. They understand that this is a ridiculous game. So <clears throat> we have to have the bravery to be willing to break through that narrative. That makes sense. My wife is from Cuba, and she's not no fan of socialism or Fidel Castro. I think that's a safe safe statement. Um, and when when uh, Fidel Castro passed away, and I think it was 2016, the Black Lives Matter official account tweeted out like "Rest in Power King" to Fidel yeah. Ca- to Fidel Castro. And a lot of people, if you point that out to them, they're like what? Like, you know, they're like, what the hell? They have no idea. Why would they even care about Fidel Castro? But you look into it further and it's uh, clearly the the Black Lives Matter movement is pushing basically big government socialism. So it's pretty transparent for someone such as my wife to see, oh, they're pushing a certain agenda. They want you to play along. And if you don't play along, they'll simply call you racist. So if you, you're able to see it from that lens, then it makes sense. Um, but unfortunately to some, it's the, the sensational word of racism just, I don't know, it cuts deep and some people care about it still. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know what it is without any substance. It's very bizarre uh, that the word racism is still thrown around in such a haphazard way. Yeah, but I think it's losing its power. I, I think the, the, the narrative that you're getting at is, is losing power and it's, and, and more and more people, you know, people are grappling with real shit right now. Like they're, they're grappling with 
you know, their groceries being twice as much as they used to be. They're grappling with where's the freaking formula for my baby. Uh, the business that I had two and a half years ago is gone. You know, like they're, they're, they're grappling with real shit. And, and so like this kind of, when it comes down to it, silly shit of you're going to call me mean words doesn't really hold power when, when, you know, there's nothing in your baby bottle. <laughs> um, and, uh, so I, I think that I, I, and I call it the counterculture. I think there is a lot of people who are forming the counterculture against this predominant narrative that we now have an avenue to go in and, and recruit to our side. Michael, now that the new leadership has taken over the Libertarian Party, and I say new leadership, that's really, you know, people like such as yourself and Angela McCardle and, you know, uh, Josh Smith and all those people. Um, there has been a, a section that was removed, and I'm not going to use the correct verbiage here, um, but some type of an anti-racism plank or something like that. And there was a little bit of the verbiage that was at least changed could you give me the proper description of what happened there and, and what's the difference between the old versus the new? So there is a plank on there that essentially outlines uh, how the, the state has no right to discriminate uh, against people for, you know, any reason about their lives. It could be, you know, race, could be gender, it could be religion, whatever. All of that stuff is outlined there. Um, and there was uh, one sentence in there that went, that kind of crossed crossed over into telling us what we must think, which is that, uh, you know, bigotry is irrational and repugnant. Um, and uh, given the climate, given kind of the topics that we had just talked about, you know, inside the party, that very line was used to purge 47 members in the uh, uh, Massachusetts party to, to call Mises members bigots so that the people who did the purging could stay in power in their state party. Um, you know, they were using it as the dialectic that I kind of described earlier, uh, how this language is being used. And, uh, basically by having that in there, it, it, it takes the left wing side of the culture war, you know, because it, it just, it, it's a positive, right. It's thought crime. You know what I mean? And that's not what libertarianism is about. Libertarianism, you know, we, we don't have this, uh, reflexive thing when it comes to our stance on drug, drug, uh, legalization. You know, we don't say, well, you know, we advocate for the full legalization of all drugs, but I condemn heroin as, as uh, irrational and repugnant. We don't do that. We only do it with this thing. And and it's, it's kind of right in that same vein of the uh, tweet that you were talking about with Joe Jorgensen. So we removed it and replaced it with another one that is a much more positive message of, you know, you <clears throat> that we respect the rights of all people at all times. So it just kind of changes it from this weird thing that says about how people should think to what the role of the state is, which is to leave us alone and leave our personal lives alone. I think that's much more accurate. I think it's much more positive. And I think it can't be used as a uh, cultural dialectic the way that the, uh, the old language was used. The narrative coming away from Reno uh, nationally, according to many, is Dave Smith and his buddies took over the Libertarian Party. Dave Smith will run for president in 2024. Um, is the description I just gave, do you agree with that? And also, uh, who's Dave Smith and how did he get involved with the Mises Caucus? Sure. So Dave Smith is a host of the Part of the Problem podcast. He is uh, also on Legion of Skanks podcast, which 
is one of the biggest and most successful comedy podcasts out there. He's got a stand-up special, uh, Libertas, that was number one on, uh, on I believe, Apple Comedy for uh, over a month when it came out. So, you know, he had already achieved success through his comedy career before he had ever become a uh, significant figure within the Liberty Movement. Uh, and at one point, he was actually a one of the rotating hosts for the SE Cup show on CNN. Uh, and, you know, he started his podcast, Part of the Problem, and that is probably the biggest libertarian podcast in the world right now, if I had to guess. Um, so, you know, he's got a huge audience. He also, like like myself, is a, a product of the Ron Paul revolution. And, uh, you know, he, he kind of comes from that Austrian line, that Rothbardian line. And, uh, you know, he, he started supporting us, I would say, right around 2018, but didn't really get heavily involved uh, until 2020 when we, we lost that convention, uh, 60-40 for the chairs race. Um, and ever since he got on board, man, our, our, our recruitment has just exploded. Um, and his podcast has exploded. He's, he's become really, uh, one of, if not the head, like leader in of the Liberty movement in terms of his reach and his, his messaging abilities. Um, so, uh, you know, he has been an incredibly strong ally for us and he's got, he's got deep connections. I mean, he's been on Joe Rogan like seven times because he's, you know, he's, he's a comedian. He's, he's a comedic colleague of, uh, of Joe Rogan, their friends. Um, you know, he gets on a lot of big platforms. He was just on Megan Kelly recently. He was on Patrick Bat David. He's been on Tim pool multiple times. He's uh, a regular on Kennedy. Uh, he's been on Greg Gutfeld. Um, so he's got more media access than any libertarian in the world right now. Um, you know, he went on Joe Rogan recently and he might single-handedly be the person that has let the most people know about the genocide in Yemen in the world right now, which is incredible. Um, so, you know, yeah, we're, I don't, he hasn't announced his run, but, uh, I would certainly love to see that happen. I think if, if that happens, given the connections that he has, uh, the audience that he has access to and not just access to, but he has legitimacy from the hosts, like the heads of these platforms, uh, that they can kind of bestow on him as opposed to just passively simply being interviewed. Uh, and I think that's incredibly important. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's been a, an, an incredible asset, uh, a great friend. And, uh, I think he, I think if he goes for it, we can achieve something that rivals or maybe even eclipses the, uh, the Ron Paul revolution, which is a scary thing to say. <laughs> and Ron Paul obviously supports it all. I mean, how he showed up at Reno to support it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had interactions with Ron Paul in the past. Um, you know, I've, I've gotten some advice from him and, you know, I've let him know what we're doing here and, and why. Um, and yeah, he's, he's a supporter. So, uh, he's done interview. I've done an interview with him. He's done a, a video kind of addressing us. He came to the event. Um, so that's, that's something I'm incredibly proud of is to, is to have his support. That, that, that's something that lets me know that I'm on the right track. And it's so bizarre. The previous, uh, administration of the official National Libertarian Party at certain points, and this sounds crazy to many people who are listening who don't follow it, the inside baseball that closely, but at certain points, the previous administration had like actively tried to distance themselves uh, from, from Ron Paul, which is very bizarre. Yes. Well, that was, that was a catalyst. To, that was one of the catalysts to the entire conflict that just 
you know, as far as I'm concerned, ended at, at this most recent uh, convention. Um, you know, like I said earlier, Ron Paul, if you are like 40 or 45 or younger and you're a libertarian, there's a very, very good chance that you are a libertarian because of Ron Paul. Um, and, uh, you know, so a lot, I mean, that, that should be the most prime recruiting grounds for the libertarian party, you would think. <laughs> but um, there's kind of been a cultural problem in the libertarian party for a while where it, it's, it, it wants to be cultural, well, it wanted to be culturally progressive. Uh, instead of culturally neutral and let, you know, the kind of the community of libertarians sort out what the dominant uh, direction is there. Uh, and they, so in order to keep it culturally progressive, I think that's why they did it. I, I think they wanted to distance themselves from, you know, Ron Paul and Thomas Massey and, and all of these guys uh, to try to appeal to that, that progressive side of things. And I, I think it was a dismal failure. I don't think uh, progressives are a, I mean, you might be able to, I'll draw a distinction between coalitioning and recruiting. You know, I, I think we should absolutely actively be coalitioning with anybody. Um, but I wouldn't recruit from every pool that I coalition with. And I don't think uh, a libertarian party, party full of progressives is, is going to advance liberty uh, as much as a libertarian party full of libertarians. Michael, I personally um, am a registered Republican. I have a friend who tried to run for U.S. Congress here in Louisville, Kentucky, and I wanted to be able to vote for him in the primary, so I had to be a registered Republican to do so. If in 2024, Dave Smith is the libertarian candidate for president versus either DeSantis or Trump, whoever it is, is a Republican, I will happily vote for Dave Smith as president. Um, could you give me your honest analysis of my strategy I just described? And do you have any advice for how I could positively impact our country in a liberty centric way? So, yeah, I mean, it depends on your state party and their bylaws, but you can be a member. Now, I, I don't want to speak specifically for Kentucky because I don't know your bylaws, but um, there's plenty of states where you can be registered as Republican and still be a member of the Libertarian Party. Um, you know, and this is something I think that is a little bit different between, uh, me and, and let's say the, the, the new regime and the old regime. I mean, anytime you're in a political party, just for the health of it, there's a certain level of partisanship that you kind of have to have, right? Like, you know, I might personally donate to, um, you know, my, my personal money to say, uh, Thomas Massey and I have, um, but we can't use our pack resources for that because we're a libertarian centric organization. Um, but that said, we're not dogmatically partisan. You know, um, we understand as Ron Paul understood that the political parties are just vehicles and, and that at the end of the day, the ideals of Liberty are the most important thing. So it's, it's how do you bring that about and, and, and how do you, you know, get that ball the farthest down the field? Um, I happen to think that in today's world, it has to be the libertarian party. Uh, because, and the reason I say that is because, uh, we're in a new age. You know, like I said, when Ron Paul was running as a Republican and he got all that attention, he got it because social, social media and, and the alternative media wasn't what it is yet. We were still in this paradigm where the, the mainstream media basically controlled everything, you know, and, and you had to play that game if you wanted to break out. That's gone now. 
you know, that's that nobody's watching the media, nobody who's up for grabs for the most part. And, uh, you know, it's, everybody's looking into the alternative media now. It's, they're looking at the podcast or they're listening to Lex Friedman. They're listening, excuse me, they're listening to Joe Rogan. They're, they're listening to Tim pool. And uh, there's a whole bunch of podcasts out there that have pretty substantial audiences that I don't even know about, you know? And, and, uh, so that's, I think that's where the energy is now. And, and because of that, I think it behooves us to, uh, to do it from a place of the libertarian party, because that means we can come in, uh, with our own narrative, our own culture on our own terms. You know, we don't have to play this game anymore where, where, uh, we're beholden to the Republican party and kind of weighing our, our interest in maintaining ourselves in that party while also trying to push forward the ideals of liberty. We could just pure and unadulterated be ourselves within the libertarian party. And now we have the platforms, you know, through people like Dave Smith, through people like Maj Touré to where on our own terms, we can push it to huge audiences that we never had access before ever uh, in, in the past. So I find that to be really exciting. Now that said, I also understand that the libertarian party isn't exactly filling up the ballot. Um, so, you know, if, if you want to, if you got a Thomas Massey and, and, you know, you want to, uh, and he's being primaried or something, then yeah, that, that makes total sense. That is obviously a, a, a net positive. I'm of the opinion that the, the libertarian party for a long time now has not been the, uh, let's say the no brainer option for libertarians. And we haven't exactly treated libertarians, um, as our customer base that we ought to listen to and appeal to. Uh, and make a, a, a valuable product for. We've treated them like people who ought to be in the party because libertarian is in the name. And if they don't like it, that's their problem. Um, and I think that's something that's going to change uh, rapidly with this new party is that it's incumbent upon us to make the libertarian party a product that, it, that libertarians want to be a part of. And I think a big part of that is going to be the community element that, that has already emerged through the caucus. And that's another thing that I'm very skeptical of being able to happen in the Republican Party because because the Republican Party can never will never be home um, for us. You're always behind enemy lines. It's really hard to build a culture and a community behind enemy lines. You're always looking over your shoulder. You're always, uh, you know, am I going to alienate uh, this donor? Am I going to lose that donor base? How do I do this mix of appealing to Republican sensibilities for political reasons and 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 the liberty? You know, like that's that's always going to be a problem. Whereas through the party and through our ability to recruit all these people and build a base, we can now build our own community, you know, and, and, and it, it be a home for us. That is the thing that really excites me. But at the end of the day, people need to make their own decisions about, you know, what they best think will forward Liberty. And if that means you have to register a Republican and vote for a Thomas Massey, then do it. You know, um, where I'm not going to begrudge you again, it's on me. It's on us to make this something that you want to be a part of. Uh, Michael, I really enjoyed, like I said earlier, I heard you recently, you were on Finding Freedom, the podcast hosted by John Odermatt of the Lions of Liberty Network. I really enjoyed it and thought we could try to uh, expand on some of those ideas that you touched on there a little bit um, for today's episode. If someone's listening, so of course the Kelly Patrick Show, as I said earlier, is a regional MMA stupid comedy podcast if someone's listening and they don't know much still they maybe they like a little bit of what they're hearing they they've maybe they've heard of dave smith or this or that they've heard of ron paul but if someone's listening and you have maybe a little bit of a call to action so obviously they could go throw themselves at uh reading 
um, you know, all sorts of Austrian economist uh, uh, work, that would be a, a start. But for maybe a podcast or, or an incremental step in that direction, what would be your call to action for anyone listening who is interested in what you're talking about? Well, if you're interested in what I'm talking about, you want to go to takehumanaction.com and sign up on our form and we'll give you emails and your information will be forwarded to your state organizer uh, to pull you into this community that I'm talking about. If you're talking about more something a little bit more broad, start attending your city council meetings. Um, you know, we need to rediscover in, in America the primacy of, of local level politics and that that really is where most of the decisions are supposed to be made and that there's great power in, in uh, local level politics. You know, you have the power to nullify the federal government. You can tell the federal government to fuck off from, from the local level. Um, and, uh, you know, it's much easier to nullify the, the, the government from your city council than it is to uh, become a congressman and then stop the federal government. That's not going to happen. So, like, we're going to have to create a culture of liberty and then from the ground up through the localities, uh, recruiting from these major platforms, funnel them down into local action, build a culture of liberty and, and start to, to find our, our bravery again as a country. And with that bravery, start to tell the feds to fuck off, you know? And, and I think that's really the, the, uh, the roadmap, generally speaking. I mean, that's a nutshell version, but um, that, that's the path that I think we're going to have to take is, is, breaking the power up from the states and return um, from the, from the, the federal government and returning it to the states and the localities as, as, as much power needs to go back down to the individual as possible. Um, it's, it's the power of the, the federal government that has the culture war raging right now. You know, people are basically going to political war with each other to, to uh, establish cultural control over each other. And as that, that is happening, the power of the federal government is growing and growing and growing. The budget is growing and growing and growing. The debt is growing and growing. So the stakes become higher if we lose, which means the culture war, if one side loses, which means the heat on the culture war is going to go, is going to escalate, escalate, escalate. Something has to act as a pressure valve to let that out. And, and I think we as libertarians have the only answer for that, which is decentralization, decentralizing the power back down to the individual, back down to the, the locality, back down to the state, just away from the feds. Um, so yeah, go to your city councils, you know, go to your school board meetings, you know, uh, call these people out, introduce legislation, you know, there's sample legislation and we have sample legislation for, you know, gun sanctuaries or weed legalization or Brianna's law or, uh, you know, warrantless use of surveillance technology. Um, so that would be my call to action. And again, if you, if you like what I'm saying, go to takehumanaction.com and, and sign up with us. I am here in Louisville, Kentucky, so relative to this part of the country, uh, a pretty big city. Uh, you're in Pennsylvania. Are you in a big city? Where are you at? I'm in Norristown, PA, so I'm about 40 minutes uh, uh, south of Philly. Okay. So getting involved on the local level here in Louisville, Kentucky, and I know this sounds like I'm making excuses. I have a buddy who just um, won and is now a member of city council in Louisville as a Republican, so that's a win for him. Um, but it's quite an uphill battle to really present, uh, true, you know, Austrian or just libertarian type principles in a big, um, you know, very Democrat heavy city. Your suggestion is still to try to, as best you can, um, you know, just scrap and, and, and try to impact on the local level at all costs. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because every, like I said, the, the, the first method of control is the, is the mind control, which is the narrative. And if we feed into that narrative by, by draping ourselves in the narrative of the GOP, which we're not, we're not Republicans. Um, the Republicans have exploded the debt. The Republicans gave us operation, uh, 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 you know, the vaccines. Why am I forgetting the name of the operation? But they, they gave us the vaccines. They, uh, you know, instead of saying, no, we shouldn't be locked down, we were getting Trump checks, and now we have all this inflation. Um, so the Republicans are currently selling out on gun control. Is that really who we are? Is that really what, what we are? Um, you know, what narrative are we putting forward if we, if we do that? You might, yeah, it, it, you might get power, but at what cost, you know? And, and so I think, again, we have to push forward our own narrative. We have to push forward our own paradigm. And we're not going to do that by using the tools of the old paradigm and the old system. So, yeah, it's, it's an uphill battle. There's nothing that's uh, short term about this. This is, this is a long haul thing. But ultimately, people are going to have to get in there. They're going to have to go to their city council meetings. They're going to have to create relationships. They're going to have to do the work. You know, that's it really comes down to that. Changing culture is no easy feat or, or, or quick feat. Um, you know, it's, it's a long haul thing. But if we do it on our terms and we do it in pockets all over the country, it will start to sprout upward. And that's what needs to happen. My understanding is the Mises caucus has taken over the state libertarian party in what is it? Pretty much every state across the country. Is that how it worked? 35, 37 states and, and counting <laughs> something like that. Yeah. That's, that's pretty impressive. How, how did that happen? We developed a system that could be uh, replicated and scaled uh, and recruited organizers in every state to, to uh, enact that system. You know, it's a system of, you know, basically, I said earlier that if uh, you go to takehumanaction.com and you fill out our form, yeah, you'll get like emails from us, but that information will automatically be routed to your state organizers. And then those state organizers get alerts that they now have a new lead. So they will reach out to, to you if you sign up and then you, and then we have an onboarding program, you know, to kind of sell to, to, to new recruits or to let them know who we are, what we're doing, what we're planning and, you know, ask for their support. And basically we just, we set up this infrastructure. Um, you know, we have regular meetings with our organizers uh, and, you know, they do that groundwork while we develop the tools, we develop the leads uh, and, and do everything that we can to empower them and to make their jobs as easy as possible. And then it just, uh, what ends up happening is as this data comes in, it stops being data and starts being a community, you know, as you work the system. And once that community takes hold, it, it becomes a, uh, a feedback loop. It takes on a life of its own. Wow. Very impressive. I, I, I know it sounds a little past due, but, um, Congratulations, I guess, on taking over the National Libertarian Party and that kind of being a, not kind of, that being a, a seed that you planted, you said in August of, what was it, 2016 or something or whenever it was? 17. Okay, yeah. so August of 2017, you started it and then you, you're there. I mean, what's, what's the next step? Obviously, the campaign for Dave Smith running for president, that's a while off. But is it just to try to win as many seats across the country on the local level? Is that the next step? 
So yeah, it's it's uh, when seats seats at the local level, but specifically seats like city council, sheriff, mayor, judge, school board, seats that if you win them, that you can nullify the feds with. Nullification is a major major part of our strategy. So you know that's one part of what we're going to be doing and what we're going to be scaling up. Issue coalition work is another one. You know, um, working working with issue groups. You know, could be decriminalized nature, which is a, a group working on psychedelic decriminalization. Could be firearms policy coalition. Uh, you know, it, it could be any number any number of things that they don't have to be libertarians, but they might have an issue that we agree with, and we basically come in and help them and deploy people to uh, lobby at the city council level or help with ballot initiative efforts and get uh, get you know freedom at the local level in a real world sense. And if we start to do these kinds of things, again, we start to gain credibility. We start to get not just brand recognition, but brand trust. And I really think that we have to gain the trust of people before we can have the real conversations about, about the ideas, you know, because we're, we're not in the in group with them. They're in the, they are already in their own little political in group. And until we as libertarians get to a point where where we are either a value add to help them destroy their enemies or we're a threat to destroy them personally, there's no reason to listen to us unless you are highly idealistic and, and open-minded, which is a minority of people. And um, so, you know, we have got to, uh, we have got to kind of build that trust by, you know, getting elected at these local seats, getting legislation passed to nullify the feds at the local level. And then the other thing that we want to scale up is doing more events. You know, I, I mentioned community and the community element is extremely important to all of this. Um, so, you know, growing that and, and, uh, you know, getting people out together in, in the real world, uh, as much as possible to build that culture and build that community, uh, you know, that's a really important element too. So we're going to be, uh, working on college outreach and education programs, uh, to get speakers out to colleges and, you know, other people will be able to buy tickets and go too. But, um, you know, that's our. Out, educational outreach and recruitment program. That's also our culture building program. Um, and if you put all three of those together, you know, essentially we want to nullify as much of the federal government from as many places as possible. That's, that's the plan. I am on the takehumanaction.com uh, website, which of course takes you to the main Liberty Party, Libertarian Party Mises Caucus official website. And I'm looking at the merchandise. There's uh, of course, Mises, but Ron Paul, Dave Smith, Scott Horton, um, Hans Hermann Hoppe, uh, Michael Malice, Murray Rothbard. And then also there's, it says there's a collection for Jordan Peterson. Do you think Jordan Peterson is consistent with what the Mises caucus believes in? Uh, well, I, I would say he's adjacent. Um, Jordan Peterson is a, is a, uh, a huge influence on me, but not, I, I don't think of Jordan Peterson as a Liberty guy or even a, necessarily a political philosophy guy, period. Now that said, I have, I have taken great strides to get him introduced to the Austrian school. And, um, you know, he has had now had multiple Austrians on his podcast and he's starting to, the ideas are starting to stick, um, with him, which is incredibly important. Um, Jordan Peterson is a, is a cultural icon. Um, so, but, uh, I, I think if you look into his work about, uh, meaning and, and, uh, responsibility and the intersection of the two, um, I think he has a lot to add, not just for libertarians, but for people in general. Um, and, and has a lot of value to provide about finding meaning in your life. 
And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who have uh, had their lives improved by, by his message. So he's a little bit, I would say he's a little bit different, not direct, like directly part of us. But again, I don't even see him as a political philosophy guy or a liberty guy, although he's not awful. I mean, he, 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 he uh, refers to himself as a classical liberal. So I think there's plenty there to work with and there's active efforts underway to uh, bring him more and more on our side. And that's bearing fruit on the Austrian thing. I love it. My wife, Yanni is just absolutely loves Jordan Peterson. She's just rereading one of his books. Now we saw him in Louisville recently and I, I saw him on the website. So I thought I would ask. So a great explanation, Michael, before we wrap things up, I know you mentioned take human action, Dot com. What other plugs would you like to mention or, or um, uh, instructions or calls to action for anyone listening? So uh, you had mentioned the store. So that's uh, MisesMerch.com. You know, we've got a lot of different designs. We got hats. We got all kinds of stuff. Uh, you know, buy some swag, help us out, help us to scale up these, uh, these efforts to help local level candidates and issue coalitions and events. Um, and then, you know, given that we've, uh, taken over the party, go to lp.org slash join, uh, and join the party for just 25 bucks a year. If you can give more than that, great. Um, but you know, become a member and, and be a part of this, uh, this new party, this new beginning, uh, where, you know, we're really focusing on libertarianism as a cultural movement and understanding that it has to be successful as a cultural movement before it could ever be successful as a, uh, a political movement. So if that's, if you want to be a part of that and be a part of this community uh, and help shift that culture so that we can, you know, tell the feds to fuck off in as many places as possible, then, uh, you know, join the party and, and uh, sign up at takehumanaction.com and, and check us out. I love it. Well, Michael Heiss, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Have a great rest of your day, Michael. Thank you. You too. Thanks. I want to thank everyone for tuning in to the Kelly Patrick Show. Of course, we'll have another episode out soon.